In less than two weeks, a new semester will begin at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C., and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to co-teaching Unitarian Universalist history and polity to six aspiring UU ministers. Since the last time I taught this class three years ago, an excellent new anthology of UU primary source a new collection has been published. I know it was at the top of all of your holiday wish lists and that they're, they're right there on your bedside table, right? Together, these two volumes weigh in at slightly more than 1,000 pages, and if you want to enroll or audit this course, you too can read more than 1,000 pages of UU history um, this spring. May or may not be your idea of a good time, but kind of is mine. Uh, <laughs> I'm almost finished reading through them in preparation for the class, and I'll share with you just one reflection that I had from considering what this new collection represents that's actually uh, pretty clear from the titles alone. Volume 1 is From the Beginning to 1899. Volume 2 is 1900 to the Present. I find it fascinating and so very UU that it took approximately 500 pages for the editorial committee to distill the essential excerpts of Unitarian and Universalist primary sources from the beginning to 1899 and then another 500 pages for just the past century. As one of our classic hymns says about our liberal religious tradition, we practice a freedom that reveres the past but trusts the dawning future more. It's very UU to have a major new resource studying our past that itself has a strong bias toward the present. Half covering essentially four centuries, the 16th to the 19th century, and half covering just the most recent century, the 20th century, basically to 2015 was the cutoff point for publication. And as the saying goes, one of the reasons that we study the past is that although history doesn't precisely repeat itself, it does tend to rhyme. And I'd like to invite us to spend just a few minutes this morning reflecting on the upcoming 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. How many of you learned about the Edict of Torda at school growing up? Yeah, I did not either. If you did, I should really be interested in talking later. Uh, the uh, Edict of Torda was a landmark act of religious toleration and freedom of conscience by history's only Unitarian king. Uh, John Sigismund Zapolia of Transylvania. Our, our Hungarian um, siblings get really frustrated when everyone, when they think Transylvania, what do they think? Dracula, right? So it's in uh, vampires, yeah. So Transylvania is modern-day Romania, and there's a very rich, centuries-long Unitarian heritage there. On January 13, 1568, 450 years ago this coming Saturday, at a time when many ruling authorities were persecuting, even killing, religious dissenters, Sigismund carved out a space for both religious pluralism and religious freedom. Congregations were declared free to hire a preacher whose teachings they actually agreed with, as opposed to just having someone sent to you by religious authorities um, that you may or may not agree with. Ministers were likewise declared free to actually teach what they really thought, as opposed to what they were told to say or having a preassigned script or limits. The edict continued, and this is pretty significant, no one shall be reviled for their religion by anyone. No one shall be reviled for their religion by anyone. I'll give you one other historical touchstone to help emphasize how significant the Edict of Torda was. 
a little more than 100 years earlier um, in 1531, not 100 years earlier, three decades earlier in 1531, Michael Servetus had courageously planted one of the first strong roots that was to grow into the Unitarian half of our heritage. Uh, He published a book with the very unlikely to offend title of On the Errors of the Trinity. It's very subtle. It was not really clear what it was about. (laughs) Tragically, rather than seeing this book as, all right, so that's one person's strong opinion. Instead of seeing it that way, John Calvin burns Servetus at the stake in 1533 for the so-called heresies of anti-Trinitarianism and anti-Pado-Baptism. Pado-Baptism is the baptism of infants. So Servetus was against that because he thought you should only baptize adults who were aware and conscious of what they were agreeing to. Servetus became one of our first martyrs. In stark contrast to Calvin's harsh rule in Geneva, King Sigismund's edict of religious toleration a mere 15 years later in 1568 gave the world this very different model for how one might choose to live amongst religious difference. I don't, however, want to overemphasize the tolerance, although it was significant for its time. As Karen mentioned, with the Edict of uh, Torda, tolerance was explicitly extended to only four religious groups, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, and Unitarians. But in the mid-1600s, carving out a big enough tent for those four groups to live together, that was actually major progress. In contrast, the standard practice in many other places at the time was allowing only one state-sponsored religion. Significantly, um, Francis David, or you heard Bob refer to him as um, Ferenc David, same person, uh, he was Sigismund's Unitarian court preacher. He was responsible both for converting uh, Sigismund to Unitarianism, and he actually wrote the text of the edict, and Sigismund signed it. There's at least two lessons there. One, you can convert people to Unitarianism. It's happened. Two, it can be advantageous to have religious progressives in high places. Indeed, David's authorship of the Edict of Torda reminds me of modern parallels, such as some of you may know the name Ted Sorensen. He was uh, John F. K- President John F. Kennedy's major speechwriter, close, his closest advisor, and a very prominent Unitarian. And if we fast forward only a few years, we can see an example from the opposite direction of how much it matters who's in the highest office in the land. Tragically, Sigismund died three years after passing the Edict of Torda at the far too young age of 30 after being severely injured in a hunting accident. If it's starting to sound a little bit like Game of Thrones to any of you, it actually is a little bit like Game of Thrones, but I don't want to get too distracted on that. In his place, a new Catholic king was crowned who removed all Unitarians from positions of power. As a result of this cascade of changes that happened from this regime change, Francis David, this Unitarian author of this landmark act of religious toleration, was found guilty of preaching new innovations in religion. And if we Unitarians are guilty of anything, it is, it is new innovations in religion. Uh, the year was 1579, barely a decade after the Edict of Torda had originally passed. If you know that old saw, uh, if you were accused of being a Unitarian Universalist in court, would there be enough uh, evidence to convict you? There was enough evidence to convict um, Francis David. And tragically, he was convicted of two things in particular. One, preaching that instead of worshiping Jesus, you should follow his ethics. 
He was also convicted of um, seeing continual reformation in religion as a good thing, rather than saying, all right, we've got these four, they're set. He actually thought it was really necessary and spiritually healthy to have continual reformation in religion. David was imprisoned and died later that same year at the age of either 58 or 59, we're not sure. He was a martyr for Unitarianism, freedom of conscience, and religious liberty. Now, that's a fair amount of UU history. I could go on, and I will, for the seminarians. But like those uh, new UU primary source anthologies with their bias toward the present, I don't want to spend all our time in the past without making connections to how history is repeating itself, or at least rhyming a bit today. The 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda is also an auspicious time to reflect on the state of religious freedom in our own time. Back in 1568, John Sigismund, again history's only Unitarian king, he made this big enough tent for four religious groups to coexist, Lutherans, Calvins, uh, Calvinists, uh, Catholics, and Unitarians. 450 years later, though, of course, the religious diversity in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world is much vaster, much deeper, much more challenging. And we've already traced the way that our Unitarian forebear, Francis David, was martyred for religious innovation. Nevertheless, even we religious liberals can find ourselves asking sometimes, are there limits to innovation in religion? If I claim something as my sincere religious belief, does that mean I have a constitutionally protected right to do whatever is my sincere religious belief? It is my sincere religious belief that I should win the lottery. I really believe it. I'm sure the state of Maryland will find that persuasive, right? I sincerely believe that we should go out on a date. Few different people have tried that over the years, right? I sincerely believe that God wants me to run for president. So many failed politicians have tried that one that I don't even know where to start listing them. These are not completely satirical questions. This line of inquiry really matters in a country in which the First Amendment to our Constitution begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So what does the free exercise of religion mean? The volume is turned up further on these questions because religions receive tax-exempt status in the U.S. So as Robert Bella and his sociologist religion, he wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. He interviewed this woman named Sheila, and he discovered basically what she believes in is called Sheilaism. And so is she therefore tax-exempt? To give one a similar long-standing matter of controversy that literally continues to this day, um, should the Church of Scientology be tax-free? Uh, some critics, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist um, Lawrence Wright in his book Going Clear, have written about why it should be considered a cult, not a religion. But who decides? Who benefits from that decision? And who gets to set the criteria? Similar dynamics played out, play, continue to play out in this ginned-up controversy around Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. So much depends on whether one's norm is one religion, whatever your one is, is superior, or whether one is a pluralist who thinks that there are many legitimate paths or it's, uh, spiritual paths or that it's legitimate not to have a spiritual path. That's, by the way, this is frequently confused, being a pluralist, thinking there are many possible legitimate options, is not the same thing as being a relativist who says anything goes. 
And from a historical perspective, it's ironic to hear conservative Christians today, when Christianity remains in many ways a cultural norm, insist on only Merry Christmas. This position forgets that back in the early days of Christianity, back when paganism was the norm, Jesus' followers were sometimes called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, because that was the norm then. As an example of an alternative perspective, our Unitarian forebear Thomas Jefferson, side note, I do not have time to get into was Thomas Jefferson a Unitarian, preached on that previously, I'll link to that sermon. All that to say, Jefferson said, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or there are no gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. 20 gods, no gods, you know, potato, potato. That is a classic liberal position known as the public-private split. You are free to do whatever you want in private, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. As soon as you hurt someone else, you're in public, right? My right to swing my fist, where does it end? When it hits your face, right? As soon as you hurt some, uh, and so in public, you have to be tolerant of diversity, or we end up back with the wars of religion that helped birth liberal religious tolerance movement in the first place. The risk is ending up back with people being killed or imprisoned for their religious beliefs. That's what happened to Servetus. That's what happened to David. That's what happened to countless others. You can look at another great book from our UU history about Abner, Abner Neeland. He has a book called The Last Man Jailed for Blasphemy not that long ago in Boston. Uh, Currently, a significant example of this ongoing controversy is a Supreme Court case argued last month that will presumably be decided in June, known as Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. This is the case about whether it's constitutional for the owners of a cake shop to refuse to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple based on the uh, grounds that same-sex marriage is against the cake owner's religious beliefs. From the perspective of the public-private split, this case is not about the cake shop owner's freedom of religion. That's how they want to frame the argument. The bake shop, uh, the uh, cake uh, shop owner is free to believe whatever he would like. The case is about whether we're going to allow, um, allow ourselves to enshrine the freedom to discriminate in public. That's why the other side of the case is the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. In another case of history not exactly repeating itself but rhyming, it's fascinating that this public accommodation debate is precisely about food and eating. There are powerful parallels to the lunch counter sit-ins, for example, during the civil rights uh, movement, which were also about public accommodation. Whether it is constitutional discriminate based on race about whether someone can be served at a given restaurant. Racism is morally repugnant then and now, as is homophobia. For better or worse, you are free to be prejudiced in the privacy of your heart and the privacy of your religious community, but it is a tragic misreading of the Constitution to try to enforce your religious bigotry in the public square. If you don't want to serve any customer who comes through the door, there's a really easy solution to that. Don't open a restaurant. And if you don't want to sell a cake to anyone who wants one, don't open a cake shop, at least not in America. In contrast, you are free in the privacy of your own kitchen. In the privacy of your own kitchen, you can make baked goods for whomever you do or don't want and give them to whoever you do or don't deem worthy, right? 
There's some important precedents along these lines. One of my favorite cases, uh, case titles of all time is Newman versus Piggy Park Enterprises. Does anybody know this court case? It's awesome. Uh, Piggy Park Enterprises was a drive-in barbecue chain owned by, I'm not making this up, the National Association for the Preservation of White People. Honestly, the parallels to today are haunting. In 1964, he argued that his freedom of religion meant that he could refuse to serve black customers. Similarly, in the 1970s and the 1980s, there were schools in this country claiming that they should be allowed to pay women less than men based on their religious belief that men had to be head of household. In these cases, the courts, because this is America, ruled that religious views do not entitle any of us to discriminate in public. Now, American courts haven't always ruled that way, but we have at our best as we've lived into increasingly widening concentric circles of who is equal. Those of you who followed the, who've been following the Cape Shop case closely know that in addition to the religious freedom argument, they are front-loading an argument about cake decorating as artistic expression and therefore as about free speech. Therefore, it's actually the bake shop owner's constitutional right to free speech that is being violated. They basically know that they need to do an in-run around precedents like hashtag piggy park. That is a halfway clever argument that deserves to be tossed right out of court. But there is no guarantee that it will be. To quote another commentator, the truth is that when a law is generally applicable. That is, when it doesn't sing out, single out any particular religious group, it is constitutional for such a law to burden some individual's religious practices when the government has a compelling interest at stake, like preventing discrimination based on race, sex, sexual orientation, etc. The Colorado anti-discrimination law, it was not written to single out conservative Christians. It was written to prohibit discrimination in the public square. From a UU perspective, I mean, before I even go on, think about that. That if it, it, think about the, I don't want to be overly slippery slope, but do we really want LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender citizens of this country every time they go into the public square to be thinking, is this taxi driver going to say it's against his or her religion to give me a ride? Every restaurant, every movie theater, it's deeply offensive um, and intended to be, actually. From a UU perspective, the even more significant point may be to make the same point but from a positive angle about why these are good things. Public accommodation laws, they actually promote religious liberty. So if your goal is anything except enshrining one religion, public accommodation laws are a good thing. The, the, the other side of this is that this same logic could actually be used to say, well, my religion means that I don't serve X religion, right? That, so th this can get really ugly really fast. So it generally actually promotes religious liberty by protecting individuals from discrimination, including on the basis of religion. That is, it actually encourages the flourishing of religious diversity. Such laws also promote human dignity, which itself is a religious value, at least for religious progressives. So on this 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda, a landmark uh, act of religious tolerance and freedom of conscience by history's only Unitarian king, let's sing a little bit together about continuing to work together to build the world we dream about. Turn uh, to 1018 in your teal hymnal. It's come and go with me. This is one of the what Woody Guthrie called a zipper song. So you'll notice after the, after the first verse, you only need to know three words, freedom, 
justice and singing. You just zip one out and zip the other in. So you might find on that second, third, and fourth verse, you can even put down your hymnal. Freedom, justice, singing. Come and go with me to that land. Come and go with me to that land. The last thing I would say is that I just want to sort of underscore that by all means I would encourage you in the public square to argue for progressive religious values, but I I don't want you to miss the patriotic argument that I think is essential as well to really say that it's at the heart of the American ideal that, you know, it wasn't until the 1950s, you know, reaction to the hysteria of McCarthyism that we put one nation under God in the, you know, in that uh, in God we trust was added to like all our money. And of course, that wasn't meant in this sort of progressive theological idea of God. It was meant this one particular that's all mid-20th century, right? The much earlier idea of America is the unofficial motto for years that's on the seal of our nation, E pluribus unum, right? Out of many, one. Unity in and with diversity. And that it's in that spirit that we're called to continue our journey in love, to do justice and to make peace, to live peacefully amongst difference. Uh, And so whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.